Uh, Father, this is a moment um, that I didn't devise or think up. Um, And uh, I pray that um, you would take all of your purposes, all that you have designed for preaching. um, And we cry out to you that you'd let preaching do its work uh, and uh, that you have ordained this process. This is uh, something that the expounded, explained word of God um, is something you use. And the Holy Spirit has given us scripture. And we're not following a myth. We're not following a tale. Um, We actually are entering into um, your history of what you've done in Jesus and how that relates to us in our life and how we react and how we respond So in this moment, Lord, I pray you, by your spirit, will be working for your purposes and help us to be really on the edge of our seat, Uh, certainly not because of the one who speaks, but the one who speaks from heaven. Uh, Help us to be humble, and uh, that includes myself, and to receive the word as we we hear it. Uh, In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Okay. it's, it's not always easy, uh, just from a preaching point of view, to drop down on a text for one time. That's not easy to do. So if we were doing a series on Ephesians 4, that would be easier. So, so we're going to look at Ephesians 4, 17 and following, uh, for a, a bit this morning. And of course, we will not be able to glean everything from it. But I want to set this up, because I've always been intrigued... Um, and I ask this for myself, and I ask this for you, and I've, I've observed how it is that we, how do we change? That's a really important question to ask. When you, when you think about it, we really are about change. As Christians, we get together and talk over coffee. We're actually about what is the gospel, and how is, it, how is this gospel calling us to respond or react or to be? We're always about change. Uh, we should be all about change. And so, uh, now that's difficult for us as, as adults. Now, when you think of a little eight-year-old running around the church, you think, hey, that kid needs, you might think of your own children. We assume people who are younger need to change. But once we reach adulthood, well, you know, we've got jobs to do, and the core idea of change isn't actually on our agenda. It's on God's agenda. So, so I've always been intrigued by how is it that change happens. I've always, uh, it's been interesting to me to bump into many good Christian counselors, preachers, uh, who have focused on this thing called change and done a really good job to think through the process of change for Christians. Now, I have drawn upon this illustration many times. If you've been here for a while, you have probably heard this, but I'm going to draw upon it one more time. Years ago, as a youth pastor, we, in California, we would take our kids across the border to Mexico. And uh, on the first trip, when we came back, we, uh, there was a thing years ago uh, called a phone booth. Do you remember that? Years ago, before cell phones, they're called a phone booth. Well, we'd stop for dinner on the way back up to Northern California. We've been in Mexico for about a week, feeding the poorest of the poor, We've been building things for churches. We've been doing Bible stories and Bible time for children. We've been playing soccer in the streets. 
we've been in Tijuana, we've been in Ensenada, we've been in other parts, and now we've stopped for dinner on the way home, and there's an interesting thing that happened. There was a, a line that was formed out in front of the phone booth. And these kids, these high schoolers, were calling home with tears in their eyes. Kevin Huggins uh, wrote years ago, he's an author, an adolescent expert, he wrote a book called Parenting Adolescence. And in that book, he he describes high schoolers as non-reflective consumers. Well, at the phone booth, I observed these high schoolers had engaged in reflection, spiritual reflection. And they had begun to think through what it was like to try to love them from their parents' perspective. And they thought throughout the trip about their bad attitudes at home. And they called their parents to apologize, and it was spontaneous. It was not prompted by any adults. And what was happening in their hearts was that they began to reflect on the love of their parents in the context of their ingratitude. They began to reflect on how difficult it must have been for their parents to bear with them because they had such poor attitudes. Their parents had been unnecessarily burdened. Gratitude and a deep, transformative gratitude entered their hearts. The love of their parents became real to them. We brought back kids whose lives had begun to change. These students could see in some measure the hardness of their hearts. The goodness of God was seen in their parents. Imagine now, through that process of repentance, if the parent then at some point would say, give an instruction, give some advice, give some direction at home. Hey, I need help carrying this. How would the child, the student, respond? A heart filled with gratitude desires to respond and to align itself with the one who has loved them so well. What entangled these students? A hardness of heart that looked like entitlement. And they could see, as they reflected in Mexico, their entitled hearts were ridiculous. They understood something of what entangled them. And it's important for us to figure out what entangles us. We've been going through this series, and what we've been looking at is there's heat in the middle of the the page, the diagram, heat, and there's two trees. There's a thorny tree, and there's a fruit tree. Underneath these trees are small little hearts, and the heart is either engaging with faith and with God in the moment of the heat, or the heart is turning away in unbelief and pride and producing thorny responses. The heat is always present. The heat can be external. The heat can be internal. 
your personal expectations, your personal demands, the personal wants, your personal needs. The heat can be external, your circumstances, your employer, however, your, your family, your children. Your heat can be uh, countless things. But somewhere in here, we have to figure out what entangles us. This is really important self-knowledge. What do we learn as we live life where we begin to observe our own thorny responses? Have you ever reflected and regretted? (laughs) Have you ever looked at yourself and you can see now that was not my best moment? We all have a collective experience with that. Can we learn from that? What is it that entangles me? What do I really love? What do I really want? What really shapes my identity? Now, this will surface itself. It will surface itself in thorny responses. Um, Have you ever been criticized and then criticized back? That's a thorny response, by the way. Have you ever returned evil for evil? That's a thorny response. So we have a need to understand what is it that entangles me. This would be good for you to journal about. Write on a three-by-five card. Put it in your Bible. What in particular do you fall for? What are you enticed by? What really gets you? What draws you into a fight? What, what, learning that, having that self-awareness. I went to a uh, conference, uh, a, a Christian, Christian counseling conference, and there was a, um, a session, an extended session on peacemaking. The people who produced the peacemaking material from Montana were there. And one uh, speaker said, when you're around a table, and you want to say something, and you're, you're, you're wanting to guard your heart, <clears throat> and you think that you might just say something that would not be really kind in this moment, uh, take a, hopefully have a bottle of water with you and take a really long drink. And wait, and wait, and maybe the urge will, pa- will pass. So have a bottle of water nearby. Today we're going to look for a moment at what entangles us, and then next week we're going to look at why we get entangled. Okay, so in your outline there, in your worship folder, hopefully this will be helpful, but I have taken some ideas from the book and I've just put it there for you so you can can see them. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32 is not intended as an exhaustive list uh, of, of things in the Christian life. It's actually just about four topics, actually, if you look at it very carefully. Um, and there's two major metaphors that Paul is using. He's using the, the, the metaphor of walking and using the metaphor of trying on clothes or put on. And so we are walking with Jesus. That is a metaphor. And the idea of our old self, well, take off those old clothes and put on, see, it's like trying on a new garment, Try on a new, some, your new self, your new self. In many ways, our worship service is a training. It's a training of how to put on the new garment. You have 
confessed your sin this morning, you have engaged in uh, already some disciplines of the Christian life, praise, confession, uh, thanksgiving, prayer, right? Well, this is, this is what it means to kind of like, oh, this is how this jacket fits. Now, new clothes don't always fit right. You notice that, right? It takes a while to feel comfortable in them, right? Well, the new clothes of the Christian life don't quite fit right, uh, and it takes some time to feel comfortable with them. So what can we look at, what can we find in this passage uh, that would be essentially sort of a, uh, a thorny response? Well, you look at verses 17 and 19, and we find that the thorny response is actually rooted in wrong thinking, wrong desires, and wrong responses to life. Look at verses 17, and I'll just read these aloud, let the, let the room fill with these. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now again, this is the darkened, uh, the, really uh, the, the mind of the non-Christian is significantly darkened. This doesn't mean we, the non-Christian cannot be a genius, cannot be extraordinary in their art, extraordinary in their literary flash. This does not mean that you can't build great architecture. This does not mean that the non-Christian is utterly depraved. This means that sin has affected the root desires, the root wants, the root needs. The whole system has been impacted by sin. That's what total depravity means. Every aspect of your personality, your mind, your body, your impulses, your desires, your will, it's all been impacted by sin. Now, here's a description of what that looks like. Verse 17 uh, continues. They are, uh, in the futility of their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Uh, and what does that mean? Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Uh, they have become callous. Notice the condition of the heart. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So now this is just, this isn't an exhaustive uh, description of sin, but it is a, an introduction to wrong desires, wrong motives, wrong living, wrong results, right? And then this is contrasted with the new or fruit responses. Remember the two pictures are thorns and fruit. Well, the new fruit responses are really contrasted with thorn responses throughout the rest of this passage. Fruit and thorns. So, for instance, verses 20 through 22, new ways of thinking by putting on the new self, new set of desires. Verse 23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There's a new self, and the new self will produce new good fruit, new desires, wants, hopes, created in the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. That's verse 24. So there's new responses. Notice speaking the truth. Look at verse 25. Um, actually, anger now has a, a different role. In the, uh, we, we, we used to not care about what, what the effects of were about our anger, and now we are to moderate our anger. In fact, we are we're given permission to be angry, um, but do it without sinning. Anybody here good at that, by the way? Um, uh, Dallas Willard was an influential uh, writer and professor of US, uh, USC of philosophy. Dallas Willard uh, one time said, 
He could not imagine anything that Jesus has, has commanded us to do that requires anger. Think about that. Is anything that we've been commanded to do as Christians, does it require anger? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the freedom. So um, if you uh, want to venture into that world, uh, go for it. Um, speak the truth and uh, be angry, but do not sin. Now, that's, 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 that's actually good fruit. That's, that's good fruit. See? Now, there's a lifestyle of, of giving. Actually, you're, you're giving grace. In verse 29, your words are now no longer meant to tear down, destroy, but you're actually a giver. The, the, the new fruit, under the heat, responding to the heat, faith in Jesus, he's, he's king, he's my Lord, he's my sovereign. I can actually speak to someone, and the point of my words is to build them up. Do you know we're never commanded to condemn people? Do you know we're never commanded to use words to destroy people? Never. Never. We're never commanded to judge people in an ultimate way. This doesn't mean the church can't be discerning or careful. All of our words, even words of correction or admonition, are to be built. The concept is to build people up, to restore them, to help them see where they've erred. And it's, a hopeful, it's to be a hopeful thing. Now, notice the, the, good, the good fruit of being kind and compassionate. Look down, look down at verse 30 and 31. Kind, compassionate, forgiving relationships. What's the basis? As Christ has forgiven you. Now, again, I'm looking at the outline there provided for you, the thornbush responses. Kind of look through this passage. And again, this, these, are, these are, what are there, six, six items here? Um, these are right from the book, and these are quite insightful. A thornbush response could be to deny or to avoid or to escape. Have you ever felt that? Ephesians 4.22, put off the old self with its deceitful desires. Uh, in the in the Gentile world, the old self, the old world, the sinful world. Uh, people abandon each other, abandon marriage, run from difficulties. Is that in the Christian world? Can we succumb to those deceitful desires? Avoiding escaping through falsehood, shaping the truth, manipulating the truth. Anger can be an escape or defensive mechanism. Avoid admitting something. And one of the great defenses is to go on the offense. So maybe we're using anger as a, as a defense mechanism. It's rooted in a deceitful desire. That's a thorn response. Deny, avoid, and escape. One of the interesting things about uh, the recovery of alcoholics is right here, is to stop this behavior. They gather in, 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 in groups, and this is the first step of recovery, of stopping this denial. And it's a remarkable collection of people who are willing to admit that they all together have this proclivity. And they are brothers and sisters in this unusual thing about denying their condition, and the recovery comes out of stopping this denial. 
another thought from the book is that we, when it comes, when we come under the heat, when, when we, when something feels too much for us, something feels overwhelming, something vital to what we've lived for, something that only brings us meaning and value. Here's another tendency from these Christian counselors. We magnify, expand, and catastrophize. That was a new word for me, actually, when I read it. I went, well, that's kind of a cool word, to catastrophize. Have you ever responded to something and you have really made a big, big deal out of it, and now you realize that you were just pretending? In other words, you made it a big deal, and you wanted it to be a big deal, and it was so overwhelming that you had to respond this way. Does that make sense? I mean, that's really a common way people think today, right? You make me so mad. Wow. That's remarkable power. You make, in other words, this is really how your basic arguments go. You are making me do this. Does that make sense? Um, now, there's one, one problem with that is watch the life of Jesus who is spat upon, hit, shamed. And none of those actions make him respond. None of those actions make him angry. In other words, he is continually under the control of his own spirit. And he is not overwhelmed and not required he's trusting his father in those moments beautiful beautiful picture so do you magnify do you expand do you catastrophize ephesians 4 22 just reminds us that we are to put off our old self and these old deceitful desires our former manner of life perhaps we thought we or we are still recovering from the idea, I'm so alone in the world. There's no kind God. There's no kind sovereign over me. I am ruled by my emotions in the moment. Only I can protect myself. I'm listening to my emotions, and it's like my emotions are telling me, only we can protect you. Number three, we become prickly and hypersensitive. Prickly and hypersensitive. It's interesting that I would argue, at least from our text here, that there's a falsehood that we are to turn away from. Verse 25 says that we are to put away falsehood. Do you see it there? Verse 25. You know, uh, we are all recovering from a false sense of self. <laughs> uh, I have an extraordinary uh, problem. I'm prideful. And... Um, and so, uh, self-importance uh, can be sort of a philosophy of life that we—that really is a, is a falsehood. And I am sort of—we can admit, perhaps, that we are people who feel we deserve to never receive criticism. What is a hypersensitive person? What does that mean? I must always have people sensitive to me. So that a person 
comes into a room and they are aware of how others must treat them. They are consciously aware of themselves as they live their lives. I would propose that that is a false sense of self. I can live freely among people. I can live in the freedom of the gospel. And the input from other people can be helpful to me. It will not destroy me. It will not be the final evaluation of my life. Ministers need to hear this. Your church, people's attitudes, people's thoughts, is well, even severe criticism isn't the final determination of who you are as a person. Pastors can be hypersensitive. Hypersensitivity is... Think about that. That's a really good one to reflect on. Why is it so important that people speak always perfectly about me or my family or my children? Why is that so important? Why is that so... Have you noticed that maybe people are always very cautious around you? Does the gospel free us from that? I think it does. Frees us from that. Oh, how about returning evil for evil? Ephesians 4.29, take a look at that. No corrupting talk shall come out of your mouth. In that moment, I have no other Lord, I have no other God, I have no other defense except my critical speech. I have no one to defend me. And so I must engage in a rhetorical put-down. And then... A thorny response is really just being bogged down, paralyzed, and captured, number five. It's interesting that um, some of the historians on this passage, it's kind of strange, isn't it, that you tell Christians, don't steal, by the way. Doesn't it strike us as kind of odd? Why would you tell Christians not to steal? And that's pretty basic, isn't it? Well, the Greek men didn't like manual labor. Didn't like digging ditches. And so, apparently... It's actually happening in, in the church and in, in the churches in this region that, I don't know, I can take that guy's sheep. In other words, they felt free to sort of manipulate and to, to borrow things and not return them. Interesting, isn't it? And they look down on physical labor. And Paul says, no, work with your hands. And the point of this would be get out of your paralysis. Get out of your sorrow. Get out of just do some normal things like work. And you'll have something to give. So the thorny response is this bogged down, paralyzed, ingrown, in this inward looking. And the, the fruitful response is engage in simple things. Begin to work. Ordinary things. See, the situation is redeemable. The situation is redeemable. You're not being asked to do something that's so hard that you can't do it. It's redeemable. And then finally, number six, self-excusing self-righteousness. Uh, righteousness, I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but that is really the core reason why Jesus was crucified. They... Those religious leaders understood that Jesus was 
pointing out that they didn't have righteousness. And they were offended at that. A lot of offenses actually are find their root in challenging some aspect of our righteousness. So you're diligent at work, you put in hard extra hours, and someone comes along and criticizes you. Wow, doesn't that feel good? Now, what fuels your response? Extra long hour righteousness. Especially from someone who's not putting in extra long hours like you are. We are quick to jump on some moral superiority and we will not uh, enter into any receiving of the truth of that. So it's a self-excusing self-righteousness. Um, and again, <laughs> uh, righteousness seeking is a core problem in my heart. Um, and I think if we're honest, we would all see aspects of this. Um, usually our, our wrath, this is verse 31, our bitterness, our anger is in some way, our slander is some way fueled by some perceived slight that we have not been acknowledged as we, as we ought to have been. It's a tough list, isn't it? Thorn responses are, are tough. And others feel these thorn responses. Others experience them. Uh, the Apostle Paul is highlighting to the Ephesians that there is freedom from these old ways of living. And so, really, these are fruit tree responses. I think there's a number of them uh, to be found in, uh, in this. And so, I'm again looking at the outline. Really, you face reality. You face things. Uh, secondly, you respond with appropriate intensity. Um, that's really what he's arguing here, that when you speak, you're to speak gracious words. That means you're moderating your tone, you're moderating your anger, you're moderating your emotion, you're thinking about the other person. So appropriate intensity. Uh, this new self will never be taken away from you. The criticism at the office, maybe it's the worst possible one you've ever received. Here's the great news. Your new self in Jesus will never be taken away from you. Never. They can't get to it. See? All that Jesus has done for you and for me, it cannot be taken away from you. Your employer can't take this away from you. Your spouse can't take this away from you. Your identity in Christ goes with you wherever you go and can moderate your reactivity. I'm secure. I'm secure. I can actually minister to this person, difficult person to love, difficult person to talk to. I can, I can, I can try to moderate and to speak into their lives. And of course, here's the great promise from verse 30. Paul tells these Christians, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And then our Christian counselors, uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, say, be alert. Suffering is meant to take us out of spiritual complacency. We are being called, be alert. You're, 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 under, you're in suffering. You're under some extraordinary heat. Something's going on. The call is to be alert. We may be tempted to just draw back into our old responses. Write someone off. Slander. Speak poorly. 
We may get angry. These are just sort of the easy things that are just kind of right there. Be alert. In what way? Be alert to the call to persevere. Be alert to see how my identity in Christ cannot be overwhelmed. Even though it feels like this experience is going to overwhelm me. It's going to define me. It's going to destroy me. Stop. Be alert. Be alert. Bitterness could leap out of my heart. Wrath and anger, verse 32. Be alert. Slander might be my way of equaling things out to someone who's hurt me. Here's another thought, uh, number four on the list. Engage in constructive activity. This is fruit. Constructive activity. Think about this. When you're in a conflict, think about the word constructive. How can I be constructive here? That's a, that's a, right? And by the way, criticism, there's a really good criticism. It's called constructive criticism. That's a, that's a good one, see? That's a good one. So engage in constructive activity. Again, bitterness, wrath, anger, any constructive, uh, anything constructive happening there. Actions done when we are grieving, when we're experiencing loss, when we're angry. Have you ever had the experience of regret when you've acted out of those things? I have. We panic, we forsake a relationship, we run. Instead, engage scripture, prayer. Do what God calls you to do. Engage the body of Christ. You need others. Regularly pray with someone. You need to be on alert. Those of you in the military, you know you're in a stressful situation. Alert, situational awareness. You've got all you have this training of, of a, a way to, to wake up. Something's underway. Something's going. Something's serious. Be attentive. And then the call to remember. Remember. This is what Paul says. Remembering is good fruit. Remembering is good fruit. Verse, four, verse 32, take a look at that. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Well, what's the basis of that? As God in Christ forgave you. What's he calling them to do? Produce the good fruit of forgiveness by remembering God's forgiveness. Marriages need this, don't they? Children need this with their siblings. Remembering how kind God has been to you. What does it look like for you to now love your sister and to forgive her? We make other people pay for their sins when Jesus has already done it. Under the heat, the last thing we remember is God's forgiveness. We lose sight of it. It's not precious to us. What is precious is retaliation, getting what we want, stopping the pain. What is precious to us is often some old way of living. Remember this question in all your circumstances. This comes from these authors. What has God called me to do and what has he provided in Christ to enable me to do it? Our reactivity is often rooted in hopelessness. But we are never in a situation where Christ is not redemptively active. Boy, I need to hear that. That's going on. Something is going on in us. Someone, here's a better way of saying it, someone is going on in us. There is a person, Christ, by the Spirit of God, is present in you. And what does he supply for you? 
What is his intention for you to give you hope? His intention is to help you see that your activity, his activity in your life can be redeemable and redemptive. And so in the heat, what are we to do? In the heat, we're called upon to be aware of our normal old ways of responding. Think carefully about how we usually get entangled. Apply faith in that moment. Think about our identity in Christ in that moment. Realize that your identity in Christ cannot be impacted by this heat. You cannot be destroyed by this heat. And express faith in, in the language of Galatians 5, 6. Faith working through love. Not easy. That's why we need each other. That's, the, that's why we need messages. That's why we need the Lord's Supper. That's why we need life in the church. This is not easy. And we cannot do this without each other. Let's pray. Father, what have you called us to do? And what are the resources that are in Christ that will enable us to do it? Father, I pray that that, that question will become deeply important to us. Grateful, Lord, for your word. Grateful for your renewing presence among us. Now feed your, feed your people. Feed your flock. Strengthen us, Lord, and help us to delight in the process of change. Thank you for Jesus who has ascended on high. He's our king. He's destroyed all our enemies. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Love, I love that subject. I would love to interact with you, talk with you uh, more afterwards about it and uh, to engage you in that. Well, let's uh, take a moment as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Uh, you can turn to page 11. That will be instructive and helpful to you. And so let me ask that you would stand. And uh, it's important that we affirm our faith, that we... Um, we state aloud some aspect of our faith at this moment, and so I'll lead you here through this. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question of 40 and 41. Uh, this is, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man? So let me ask you this. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Why was our mediator called Jesus? Come up.